You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Hello and uh, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is climate risk and response in Asia. And today we're doing something a little bit different. I am th joined by three journalists and reporters from uh, media. So we're really looking forward to that. The context of our conversation is very simply climate change, climate risk, sustainability is our generation's imperative. We in McKinsey, we've done analysis looking at what the impact is longer term. We estimate that there's between one to two trillion dollars of GDP at risk due to climate change over the next uh, couple of decades. There's something like 300 to 400 million people that live in parts of Pakistan, India, Bangladesh that are at risk from lethal heat waves, let alone being able to work outside. And that's by 2030. We look at the increased risk and probabilities of typhoons, of severe drought, of riverine flooding. So there are many types of climate risk that we face in Asia. So Asia is very much at the epicenter of what is going on on climate risk. And the question is, what are those risks? And can Asia become a leader in that mitigation and encountering that, that climate risk? Today, I am joined by three reporters and journalists. I am joined by Jessica Chim. She is the founder and managing director of EcoBusiness. Uh, EcoBusiness was established in 2009 and is, uh, is Asia Pacific's leading media organization on sustainable development. I am also joined by Esther Sambo. She is the managing editor of the Jakarta Post. The Jakarta Post is uh, Indonesia's largest English uh, language newspaper. And I am finally joined by Bibek Bhattacharya, who is the deputy editor from uh, Mint Lounge. Mint is one of India's premium business news publications. And Lounge is their premium weekly magazine that focuses on lifestyle passions and other related interests for readers. Welcome to all three of you. Now, if you don't mind, even before we jump into climate risk at hand, I'd just like to warm up if that's okay. I'm going to pull a surprise on you and just ask you, you know, we've now lived through many months of the, of the pandemic, of the COVID pandemic. What are some of your learnings uh, on the personal front from, uh, from the pandemic so far? Jessica. Thanks so much, Oliver. I think that's a very interesting question. Everyone has had to adapt, you know, um, into the huge disruption that COVID has brought along. And I think that remote working, you know, virtual meetings, are, you know, a perfect example of how we've had to adapt. But I think what COVID has really helped us do is actually give us some time to think and reflect, which I think society has needed to do for a long time and to actually examine our current business models and the way that we respond to black swan events like COVID and then tying that to the topic of our conversation you know looking at longer term risks and um, climate change uh, phenomena that you know is coming on to us I think that this you know kind of led us to really kind of examine some deep-seated existential questions that we have about our existence so I think that's the one silver lining from COVID. Thank you. Bebek. 
Well, personally, it's been, well, I mean, it's been strange, of course. I mean, uh, I've been working from home for the past, like, almost seven months now. What has really come home to me from this entire, uh, from the pandemic, is uh, just how vulnerable we are to shocks. And, you know, despite our, you know, infrastructure, our organizations, our, the, every, the full paraphernalia of state and everything, it's still catches us completely unawares and we're still in many ways trying to figure out what to do exactly. And I think that's the biggest thing that after seven months, we are not really much closer to understanding what's going on than we were before. I think that's been the biggest takeaway as part of my work. Thank you, Vivek. And finally, Esther. I think for my end, just to add on Jessica and Vivek's points, which I completely agree, is the fact that the pandemic has really uncovered the potentials and as well as shortcomings of us personally and of our institutions in a professional level. I would say that digitalization has really played a crucial role. It's if not forced during this pandemic, right? We're all forced to work from home and innovate based on what we can do from behind the screen. So overhaul, if not reform on the ways we do things, And for me personally, it has really given me time to think and reflect and on a personal level, appreciate small things for the time being. So that's all from my end. And what are some of those small things that you appreciate? More or less the ability to look firmly at the sky every day, uh, the, the clear blue sky, right? Uh, at least from the, yeah, the air quality level in Indonesia, which has been really poor so far in Jakarta, capital city, but it's been much better compared with pre-pandemic levels. Exactly, exactly. The clear blue sky. And, and uh, any, any similar kind of, you know, those, some of those small things that you rediscovered or discovered during the pandemic, Jessica or Bebek? Well, just actually congregating in groups of more than five, you know, I, for the longest time, we haven't been able to see friends. And if I want to meet my family, we have to choose which ones we want to meet. So that's been quite, quite funny, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, and that's correct. I think uh, it's very important, like we understand the importance of other human beings, of human relations better now in many ways because they are not there right now and you realize how much you need them to function both personally but also as part of you know society and how much that matters now listen i think you guys are on to something it's rediscovering some of the basics you know the blue sky rediscovering you know the need and the love of being around friends and family and just having those those personal interactions being reminded of 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 that listen guys let's let's shift in and talk about you know the topic at hand which is climate risk climate change let me just start here by saying what what are some of those real impacts what are some of the real impact that you are seeing from climate risk and climate change here across asia let's start with you uh bebek one thing that has uh, that is really cleared now is that as far as india is concerned and more broadly say south asia so pakistan india bangladesh uh, is that there uh, the climate crisis is kind of hitting from multiple directions it's not just sea level rise it's not just heat waves it's not just melting glaciers it's all of these things and more um so i think the most uh pressing problem i would imagine for india is heat 
both in terms of uh, heat waves, but also in terms of uh, chronic heat. For example, this year we had a bit of a heat wave in the northern and central parts of the country. Uh, nowhere nearly as bad as a few years ago, but it was still there. And the problem is that what is kind of uh, becoming very clear is that India is suffering from chronic heat because, say, from around April to just around now, end September, early October, the days are continuously hot increasingly humid in many parts of the country. And this is just adding to health risks and various other factors. Now that's one end of it. But then again, in India this year, we've had a variety of like, you know, sort of like foreshadowings of the future in terms of climate risk. We've had a super cyclone hit the eastern part of the country. Uh, we've had massive marine heat waves We've had other extreme weather phenomena like, you know, completely violent monsoon rainfall, floods, landslides. And uh, in many ways, it's kind of helping us kind of put together the larger picture of the challenges being faced by this part of Asia, which is multi-pronged, really. I just want to stick with you and on India for a little, a little while here, which is, you know, what you're describing are some very real and very tangible effects of climate change and risk and the obvious things that follow from that. Is this recognized by the powers that be and, and the leaders of the country? And is it prioritized, in a, in, and especially in the current situation where there are many priorities, there's a COVID pandemic going on uh, with everything that follows in, that, in its aftermath? There was actually one very important thing that happened this year, which was in, I think it was in June, that uh, one of the central government's ministries, the Ministry of Earth Sciences, brought out India's first ever climate change assessment. And which is actually a big deal because uh, what the ministry did was to rope in some of India's top climate scientists and give them free reign to look at the data, to look at trends, to look at climate models and bring out this assessment. And uh, this assessment uh, doesn't mince any words. I mean, it, it really lays out the problem as it is. And I think that's a big first step uh, because once you do acknowledge that there is a problem and uh, then, you know, it's easier to kind of feed that into your policy positions as a government. Um, Generally speaking, yes, there has been quite a few positive uh, noises from the government in terms of, say, moving towards a greater share of renewable energy and looking at risk assessment and planning for risks. But I must say that all this is still at a very nascent stage. Uh, earlier this year, the Indian government announced that uh, it aims to uh, have about 510 gigawatts of renewable energy by 2030, which is a very laudable aim. But let's see where it goes. So, yeah, I think there is a growing understanding uh, in the various both set, uh, state and central governments that this is something that you need to factor into your policy. Uh, but as to, but as you said, that right now the focus is on coming out of the massive economic damage that's been caused by COVID. So we'll have to see what the trade-offs will be in the short and longer term. Thank you, Bebek. Let me move to uh, Esther. And the same question to you. What, what do you see as a real impact on climate risk? 
I think that there are many impacts that we're seeing already in Indonesia, but I really want to touch deep on the food security issues, given that Indonesia is one of the world's major agricultural nations with vast and abundant land. And around 28% of our workers are in the agriculture sector. Uh, This is the latest data from 2019. And this share has dwindled dramatically from around 67% in the 70s. The Jakarta Post tried to really look into the reasons behind this rapid drop in interest especially from the uh, young segment of the society on agriculture, right? And our main findings are that, so we issued this um, special report titled Land Without Farmers, Indonesia's Agricultural Conundrum. And our main findings are that farmers are becoming increasingly less and less interested sector for Indonesia's young workforce. It is laborious with small yield uh, when compared with the many costs that the farmers have to bear, including from climate risks, right? So the extreme weather conditions caused by climate change, especially prolonged droughts and severe floods in Indonesia have led to many crop failures across the country. And for our farmers, losing a harvest season can have very very serious repercussions on the future of their production, if there's even any, because that would mean for some of them losing their job forever right because they cannot comprehend just a loss of one harvest season so that would leave them with no capital to start anew so this is particularly depressing for indonesia i could say because at 110 out of 113 countries surveyed by the global food security index indonesia ranks among the lowest that's that's the fourth lowest country in natural resources and resilience category And that has resulted actually in 22 million people enduring hunger um, from 2016 and 2018 due to the inavailability of food in Indonesia, according to uh, various studies from the government, Asian Development Bank and other research institutions as well. So if you can imagine this chain of reactions from climate risks, discouraging farmers to plant, right, and causing food insecurity and even hunger in turn affect nutrition, human capital development, including health. This is actually the climate risks are actually creating a domino effect, which could have knock on effects to the country's overall development, I would say. And to that point, the climate risks and interests on farming have also resulted in volatile food prices. I'm not sure how the system, the inflation system works in other countries around the world. But in Indonesia, the volatile food prices is one sub-index of the overall inflation uh, or consumer prices index commonly used to measure inflation. So this so-called volatile food prices have been the main source of volatility in overall affordability of stuffs in Indonesia. And this has really been affecting the purchasing power of Indonesians. So What all these points that I just uh, raised say is that in turn, climate risk can uh, affect purchasing power as well. Not to mention the, you know, public health and healthcare system issues as well that we also have to pay attention on considering, you know, um, diseases such as malaria, dengue, diarrhea, cholera, which are quite rampant in Indonesia and are predicted to increase because the rise in temperatures and as water becomes contaminated across the archipelago. That's, I think, the real risks that we're seeing uh, in front of our eyes here in Indonesia.
So let me let me stay with you, Esther, here. So what you're describing here is the negative impact on, let me call it the livability for farmers. Their yields go up and down. You're describing volatility of food prices, you know, less affordability of food, the impact on public health. Now, I've, I've personally, I've spent a lot of time in Indonesia over many, the last, you know, 15 years or so. And at least if I go back in time, I did not hear much talk about climate change and climate risk from many of the senior leaders. Is that changing now? Do people recognize these things that you're saying, that there's a link with all of the, the problems that you're saying? And the, do they recognize this link into climate change and climate risk? Yes and no. So fortunately, the awareness has been rising from the high level uh, officials uh, in the government. And there are many efforts partnering with the private sector. But I would say that those efforts remain uh, very scattered and to a certain extent, sometimes not uh, well organized. And as Bibek mentioned earlier, the, the, this focus on COVID right now has changed the government focus towards structural reform, especially to emerge out of this crisis economically with positive economic rec recovery trajectory. Right, but in terms of of awareness, I, I feel you, Oliver. I, I've I've covered uh, the economic and business and finance since 2009, and I could safely say that the past two years, I feel that the issues of you know sustainability and you know whenever a factory is officiated but by government officials are our, our, our government officials really like uh, these uh, factory lo factory launches right because it means greater investment stuff like that but we never ask the questions what will the environment impact or effects be out of that particular factory launch right but recently I feel an emergence of a lot of um, new startups and organizations and the government has also, it's now part of their talking points, the environment impact of economic development and investment as well. Now that Indonesia is very much focused on investment. Thank you. Jessica, let me, let me shift to you. I, I believe you're based in Singapore, is that correct? Yes, that's right. But you're, you focus on all of Asia. So let, let, you know, give us a little bit of a view on the Pan-Asian view, if you will, uh, and then also zoom in on Singapore specifically. Thanks very much, Oliver. If you, if I may, I actually would like to take the global view because I have been reporting on climate change and climate risk for more than a decade now. And the last two, three years, I've actually spent a lot of energies going to the Arctic and Antarctica, looking at what's happening there. And what we're seeing is really terrifying. You know, Antarctic melting at a record rate, you know, record temperatures in the Arctic summer, losing an unprecedented volume of sea ice. And what happens in the poles obviously affect the rest of the world. And what we're seeing with climate change impacts in specific markets like Australia, the US with the wildfires, and then the droughts in Chennai, flooding in Jakarta, rising sea levels and rising temperatures where I am in Singapore. This really paints a picture of many ecosystems reaching their tipping points. And I think that, you know, there is a conversation now about to what extent is climate change locked in into our global environment now? Uh, and how can we respond to that? So the, the picture is actually quite grim from, you know, having reported on this for more than 10 years. Uh, and, and you can see that there is a definite economic 
cost and the impact on businesses. So, you know, if you think about um, climate change and the regional picture, I think that we are looking at, you know, not just extreme weather patterns, but the loss of biodiversity and our natural world. And I think that that also then has an impact on the availability of raw materials, resource scarcity, and a lot of business, you know, they are on their journey discovering how climate change or and how climate risk uh, impacts on them. Uh, and, and, and in so far, um, with this journey, I think some companies are doing better than others and some governments do better than others. Um, and now I think what we need to be worried about is the stranded assets, you know, in the future, whether certain infrastructure projects actually become obsolete because of climate change and how are governments and organizations responding to that. So there's going to be a lot of capital reallocation, I think, that we're going to be seeing and the price of assets being readjusted for climate risk. And I think there's just one more thing I'd like to add here. And this is something that people don't talk about often. And that is that the, the, the biggest climate risk, I think, that we're going to see is the breakdown of society and actually social instability, the risk, the risk of a rise of civil war because uh, communities are fighting for water, uh, food, energy. And, you know, people think that climate change is like, OK, it's just a physical um, event. It's not just a physical event. It actually ties into a lot of the social fabric uh, of the societies that we live in. And so I think this needs to be talked a little bit more because um, I think governments will have to really kind of face this issue head on if they're not uh, prepared for it. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Many things to pick up there. Let me start with a couple of things, uh, Jessica. I heard you saying some governments are doing better, doing more, doing better. Some companies are doing more, doing better. Let me start with the companies. You know, just mention what are some, the com- some of the companies that are doing better? What do they do? So the companies that are doing better have uh, been traditionally those that are listed because they are mandated to disclose, right? And so they have a little bit more uh, impetus to look at what are their climate risk strategies, uh, how they, they, they disclose their climate risk, and then how they manage that risk. So the listed companies, you know, that you see in Europe, US, and Asia are the ones looking at this and articulating a strategy, and some are doing better than others. The ones that have done better are the ones that have used science-based targets, for example, to really kind of uh, look at how robust the targets are and what their response is uh, and the others are those that you know disclosed on TCFD that's something that's more uh, western I guess suppose you know led by Europe and the US what is TCFD uh, the task force for climate related disclosures sorry about that and it's, it's, it's a growing movement you know and it's you know led by the G20 group uh, on finance and it's kind of really forcing organizations to look at what the climate risk strategy is and then responding to that articulating it because if you don't have a strategy you don't think about about it, then you're really unprepared. And I think in Asia, this is really nascent. Uh, we're seeing some companies in Singapore, for example, there are maybe three or four companies that are on science-based targets and have adopted TCFD uh, guidelines. And the huge swathe of them are still struggling to understand and to respond. So I think that we need to help organizations accelerate that understanding and the, and the embracing of climate risk thinking. Thank you. Esther, I saw you, I saw you nodding when uh, Jessica was talking about what some of these companies are doing. And, and uh, so, Would you care to add to that? Yeah, I think that it, it's really interesting when Jessica mentioned about that because uh, here in Indonesia, 
there's only a very few companies who are which are transparent in terms of their efforts for sustainability right for our listed companies even uh, this the financial services authority does never mandate a sustainability report it is voluntary but we're increasingly seeing more and more companies doing that sustainability reporting right and it really adds points towards the credibility of the companies but i'm also increasingly seeing a lot of incentives for workers for small stuffs like taking bicycles to work taking public transport to work giving subsidies for solar panels stuff like that so i feel that these small things from these very few companies uh we need to really push those efforts so that they are being heard uh, loud and clear out there i think that's our uh, our mandate as well as journalists right to uh, not only cover the bad the hard truth the naked truth about uh, you know the environmental e- effects but also what are the things initiatives that the very these very few companies in indonesia are doing to sort of address the climate risks got it bebek in india are there any shining stars amongst companies when it comes to what they're doing You know the thing is that as Jessica was saying a lot of the larger listed companies are trying to move in this direction uh with um varying levels of success I think the more important thing as far as India is concerned is that uh, a lot of our uh, top uh, corporate houses are actually now uh making pledges of like certain carbon goals and like you know working with research organizations to figure out how they can be future ready in terms of like you know mitigating for uh, carbon and uh, also i think one timeline is very clear is that no matter what happens india as a country is definitely and seriously looking at uh, you know industrial decarbonization because i think uh, most of the time this is uh, the push pull of whether you know do we get rid of say our reliance on coal energy or something like that these are couched in the language of jobs that you know so many people will lose their employment if we move to renewables or you know something like that but i think it's getting increasingly clear there well, are two aspects one thing that is getting increasingly clear is that if work starts now by the time a lot of india's goals are uh, immediate goals especially to the un and the i and the unfccc is geared towards 2030 so i think if the work starts now by 2030 we actually may be looking at a paradigm shift even in terms of looking at things from the point of view of employment like for example um, as part of my podcast i was speaking to a gentleman who works with the government in kind of uh, in trying to figure out policy regarding energy and clean energy and other climate change affiliated things what he was saying to me is that uh, you know when you kind of look at the employment coefficient of uh, you know um, say solar energy he said that it's about 3.5 as compared to 1.5 for coal so if you are really kind of guiding your country's policy and also companies are guiding their own policies from the point of view of like translating the fact that you, there are a huge number of jobs that can be gotten from renewable energy how do you kind of put together how do you kind of roll the ball so that you know that process gets started 
so just to understand what you're saying, you know, your coefficients, you're basically saying that there are more jobs to be created within renewables, kind of power unit for power unit. There's actually more jobs in renewables than there is in coal. Yeah, that can be created than uh, what already exists in coal. But, but, but the other part of the dilemma is that a lot of the new renewable energy jobs may not be in the same geographies as where the coal jobs were. So, yes, you might, uh, you might generate more employment, but it may not be in the same area where, uh, say, coal is generating employment. So, so that is something that you definitely need to kind of uh, look at because it is a sizable number of people who are employed in the sector. But also the other part is that even when it comes to, um, you know, India's energy efficiency, a lot of our, uh, as Jessica was saying, that they're increasingly uh, the, the, the fear of more and more stranded assets because a lot of the older carbon-based energy production is frankly not uh, financially viable. Like, you know, our uh, discoms are facing massive losses. There's a lot of government bailout that's regularly happening. So the question really is that how long do you keep bailing out forms of energy creation, which are no longer energy, uh, you know, economically viable? How do you shift that money towards renewables and how you ensure that the carbon-based uh, uh, power generation you already have is as clean and there is as zero waste as possible? So how do you maximize efficiency in the existing fossil fuel energy economy? And how do you transfer more money and more subsidies towards raising India's renewable energy component? Let me ask you one other question to you, Jessica. If you were in front of a board, what do you tell the board? Well, I think that, uh, you know, Asian bots especially really need to take climate risk seriously. In the past, it's always been like a fringe issue that perhaps, you know, the HR unit or comms unit actually looks at. But today, bots that do not look at climate risk are going to be at risk of being totally irrelevant. And it's really changing the business landscape. So, I mean, I'll give you an example. I sit on the board of ComfortDelGo, which is one of the world's largest transport company. And climate risk is something that, you know, is really important because we are seeing the electrification of uh, the transport system moving from fossil fuels to electricity we're seeing you know the, the abandoning of diesel and uh, ICE uh, combustion engines uh, into electric vehicles and if you don't think about some of the future business models that you can adapt then you're seriously going to be out of business in a very short five to ten years and so when you talk to boards I think that they really need to think how can you integrate this climate risk thinking into all levels of the organization it can't just be something that you know one department looks after it has to be something that is um, organization-wide. And when I mentioned, you know, some of the points earlier, things like uh, science-based targets, climate scenario planning, enterprise risk management, looking at climate events, these are things that boards absolutely need to think about today because this is going to hit them sooner or later. Thank you. Bebek, you, you looked like you had a point of view on this too. Well, I mean, it's almost exactly the same as what Jessica is saying. But uh, yeah, the one thing I would like to say that, you know, that A, yes, boards absolutely need to realize that if they are not factoring in climate change now, they are making their own businesses unviable uh, and not even in the long future, you know, in the very short term future. And also the other thing is that it's not enough 
to talk about climate change and sustainability as part of your corporate social responsibility and or your philanthropy, but you actually need to make that a part of your business strategy. You need to think about it as much as you think about your bottom line. And it's that's the only way that this can work. And that's the only way that your company can work as well. Only way your company can work. I, I take that away from, from that, uh, that comment. Let me go back to you, Jessica. Now, again, with kind of the, let me call it the Pan-Asian lens, what are some of the efforts you would like to see in place? You know, if, if, if you had your magic wand, what would you like to see in place as a series of initiative cutting across the entire uh, region? Thanks, Oliver. I wish I had that magic wand. I would do a lot of things. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a lot of potential for Asia to take the lead here. You know, you asked me a question about Singapore earlier and I, I forgot to respond. But if you look at um, the, the country, it's a low-lying island and we suffer from urban heat island effect, flash floods, rising sea levels. And for the first time, our Prime Minister Lee Hsien Long at the National Day Rally last year actually said, you know, climate change is an existential issue for us. He pledged $100 billion in climate adaptation efforts and he promised to decarbonize uh, Singapore's economy. Now, this is actually quite a big commitment because um, Singapore is very reliant on the petrochemical industry. Our Jurong Island hosts the biggest petrochemicals uh, complexes in Asia. Um, and I think that you are starting to see governments really respond to this climate risk and thinking very, very strategically about what is the long-term viability of these projects. And so, you know, if you ask me, I think that uh, Asian governments need to build resilience into their responses. They must take into account both mitigation and adaptation at the same time. They must be simultaneous strategies that they roll out at, uh, at the moment. And also, I think where COVID is concerned, something that's quite interesting uh, that's happening in Europe, which I hope to see more in Asia, is tying stimulus measures to climate-friendly outcomes, positive sustainable development outcomes. For example, if you bail out an airline or you bail out a transport company, um, you can actually dictate that the investments go into cleaner technologies to aid the energy transition and to decarbonize uh, economies. Um, and I think that there are some very positive signs coming out. If you look at China, for example, they made a climate pledge to become climate neutral. Uh, Singapore has a similar pledge to become climate neutral by the second half of the century. South Korea has uh, pledged a similar climate pledge. So I'd like to see more of the emerging Asian countries um, coming up with bold climate statements and targets because only if you set a target really high and, and, and you reach it, you, if you fall somewhere you know, below, at least we're still getting somewhere. Whereas if you don't have the policy political will or the conviction to, to commit in the first place, then it's very def difficult to move to move governments in that direction. You use the words build resilience into responses. What, what does that mean in practice? It's building on what Bibek said, you know, that if we are going to uh, spend taxpayer money, that we spend it on cleaner technologies and uh, innovations that drive decarbonization rather than reinvest it back into old sectors, that's not going to get uh, us where we, where we need to be. And so things like research and development in the future industries that we want to see should absolutely be where the, the priority areas are for governments. Got it. I think uh, there's one thing actually I would like to add to what Jessica was saying. To my understanding, uh, when you talk about building in resilience to how you respond to risk. So, for example, I'll give you a very tangible uh, example of this is the there was the super cyclone which hit uh, Eastern India, super cyclone Amphan in uh, May, in end May this year. Now, uh, there was a lot of that. I mean, it's it's the perfect lab experiment of climate change because it actually became supercharged into a super cyclone almost overnight 
thanks to a marine heat wave in the Bay of Bengal, uh, which was caused by various other factors leading with, uh, you know, decadal, uh, uh, you know, kind of storing of heat in the ocean. But be that as it may, once uh, uh, there was a good enough uh, window of warning that this cyclone was approaching. And by now, uh, both Indian central and state governments are very good at like, you know, taking immediate disaster control measures. So uh, many, many sub, uh, millions of people were shifted away from low-lying areas and thankfully fatalities were few. But this is the problem that now we are kind of locked into this cycle of saving people whenever an extreme climate event happens. But we still haven't gotten to the point where we now say that, hey, this is something that's probably going to happen every other year. So we have to not just rescue those people and then put them back in this devastated landscape because of the cyclone and like, you know, and they have to pick up the pieces until the next cyclone hits. So, but you know, that is not a sustainable way to go forward. So you have to kind of build in this kind of like an understanding into how you respond to risks. Like, you know, do you relocate those people, give them perfect compensation for doing so, create jobs for them elsewhere so that they are happy to move so that you don't have to go through this cycle every year, which is kind of kind of like a self-fulfilling pointless thing. So, yeah, that's one. That's another way of looking at it in terms of like, you know, state uh, readiness. Let me go to Esther. Uh, let me ask you the same. You know, if you had the magic wand for Indonesia, what do you do? That's a very interesting uh, question, by the way, Oliver. And I would like to have that as well. But it, when I first heard you raising that question, I just feel that uh, we all need to be on the same page, right? On the realization that this is dangerous. This is something that we need to address uh, sooner rather than later. And we're already seeing this commitment in the Paris Agree Agreement as well, right? Countries around the world, you know, getting together uh, in this effort. But the political will aspect of that, you know, agreeing to something is one thing, right? But really realizing that uh, this is something that needs to be on high priority for all the leaders across Asia. I think uh, it's very important. So this alliance should be built upon the objective of not only reducing em emission, but also addressing the, the climate risks. But so if you ask me, uh, what would I do with that magic one? I would, you know, sort of create a wave that sends across uh, everybody, every leaders in Asia's minds, right? That this is something that we need to address and you need to have the political will on that, not only to agree on this, but also to trust the science and research and the people, the experts who are working on this. Uh, because I think we're also seeing a lot of um, efforts on the research front being made, you know, just being a research paper, right? There's nothing really pol policy action out of that. So uh, I would like to see more uh, policy action and uh, this alliance taking shape uh, sooner rather than later. 
Just adding on to Esther's point, I think that there is a lot of room for Asian countries, you know, to work together on a coordinated strategy towards climate change. Right now, it's very disparate and everyone's doing their own thing. And if you look at the Nordic countries, for example, the way that they trade energy, right, it's such an amazing story. They, on one day, they can be like 100% powered by wind energy. And then if they have access, they sell it to another country. If just Singapore, Indonesia and Malaysia could do that same thing, imagine the energy security boost that we would get, the rapid decarbonization that we would see. And I think that on that front, you know, that that government level coordination probably isn't still quite where we need to be. So just, you know, wanted to acknowledge that point. Listen, I, I don't have a magic wand, but we do have the ear of many senior people across Asia. So if I ask each of you, let's do one sentence each. What is your one sentence ask or piece of advice to the senior leaders that are listening to this podcast in one sentence? Esther, let's start with you. Uh, acknowledge the risks, have the political will, and trust uh, science. Thank you. Be back. Okay, uh, I'll, I, I will give you a line, but I'll need to elaborate on it a bit. I think, uh, and, and, and this is something that both uh, Jessica and Esther was uh, saying, I think multilateralism needs to become cool again. You know, countries need to work together because there's only so much that individual countries can do. There is quite a lot that they can do, but they do need to cooperate at least with their regional neighbors because we share everything. We share rivers, we share cultures, we share risks because the glacier may be in one country, the river runs through another. So uh, you have... Do you absolutely have to cooperate? I think this kind of like, you know, understanding that you need to work as a collective, whether it comes to people, whether it comes to corporates, whether it comes to countries is very, very important right now. And Jessica, one sentence. My one sentence would be, within one year, I'd like to see your organization publish a report that sets out your climate risk strategy, how you're going to respond to it, and how you're going to deliver it. To all, let's, let's all just remember that we are all citizens of a country. We're all inhabitants of one earth. As what, What's your one wish of each and every one of us as inhabitants of this one earth? Back. I think probably the biggest thing would be to make all your decisions fra- through the prism of uh, compassion. Because once you do, I think you will, it's important to understand what another person is going through so that you can formulate your responses to the way you live, you know, according to that. So I think, yes, I think that's the most important thing for me. Thank you, Jessica. I think for me, it would be that we should vote and buy with values at the center of it. Because if we vote in the right governments that are putting in the right policies to enable a more resilient and sustainable future, then you know we have a shot at solving this problem. And to buy and support only companies that are doing the responsible thing, who are going to be part of the future, do not support companies that are part of the past, vested interest, old business models, old ways of exploiting the natural world and society. I think that's really untenable. And if we have this mass movement of every single citizen making decisions on those values, I think we can see the change that we want to see. Thank you to all three of you. I'm not going to try to summarize, but I will end by saying, I think, make every decision with compassion to your fellow inhabitants. 
and voting by with values at the center. That's what I uh, take away from this conversation, many other things too. Thank you so much to Esther. Thank you to Bebek. Thank you to Jessica. And thank you all for tuning in today. Thank you so much. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook.